This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. We also be joined by Christopher Gennady, who's the global head of research at Wisdom Tree, also a registered rep of Foresight Fund Services. And our sketch is not tied to the offer or or sale of any investment products. We have a really interesting show going deep on climate change um, with a very interesting guest. Uh, But before we get to that, Professor, we're going to kick it off to you. We're getting to earnings season. We've got the banks. We've got inflation. I'm curious to get your take of all that's been going on. Right. Well, all that hope that, um, you know, there was a good chance for a pause, I think kind of hit the fan today. Um, and I think that's one reason the market is down. And we we had, of course, earlier in the week, uh, pretty good CPI and, and PPI reports, which uh, spawned hope that this this was enough for the Fed to uh, to actually pause. Um, and then today, um, uh, retail sales were not that weak. I mean, the, the 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 headline number was 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 weak, but. But the control group was actually stronger than expected. That fits in the GDP. And a lot of it looks like it was a gasoline decline. Um, we, we, had a, we had a drop in manufacturing part of production, which is more important than industrial production because uh, industrial production is utilities, and that depends on weather. However, when you, it was revised up last month by more than it actually dropped below expectation this month. So that didn't really provide a lot of um, um, uh, ongoing weakness. The big shocker was the uh, 10 a.m. Friday announcement, today's announcement of of the um, one-year inflationary expectations, which uh, jumped from 3.7 to 4.6. I think it's one of the biggest on record. Uh, I I mean, is, is that a data error? It's not a data error. It could have been taken... My speculation within a day or two after uh, OPEC announced the, uh, you know, one million uh, per day cut and the headlines were, you know, this means higher uh, gasoline prices. Everyone said, oh, oh, my goodness, I'm I'm expecting a lot higher inflation. Now, gasoline prices have gone up uh, since then. Oil has gone up since then, actually. From the, um, uh, you know, the February levels, um, and uh, this was announced uh, in March, just about this time, actually, wholesale gasoline has gone up 40 cents a gallon, and that will eventually feed into retail. However, this is really a big uh, drop. Now, the five-year, the 10-year did not increase. It stayed at at 2.9%. Nonetheless, the overall sentiment did increase more than expected, so... Uh, today's data basically said things are not falling apart yet. Um, <laughs> I put the yet term in there because uh, we're we're you know getting more and more on the ground that lend the lend with the lending side is is going to be impaired. One has to remember, as I pointed out for two weeks that it won't be to the very end of this month and into April that the true effects of the banking crisis, if you will, uh, will uh, be felt on the real economy. Um, We're getting data from March. SVB occurred in the middle of March, so you're not really getting that that full effect. Um, uh, uh, Clearly, uh, even before the Fed announces um, we're going to get some of the ISM reports and manufacturing reports. Of course, the Philly and New York come in for April and they come in earliest. And then on the first day of the month, uh, which uh, will be May 1st, we're going to get the the manufacturing. And May 3rd, we're going to get the day of the decision. We're going to get the the services. So we're beginning to get it. We will not get the payroll. And by the way, 
it's my understanding that by the Wednesday meeting on May 3rd, they will not have the payroll um, available. I don't know whether he can get a, a partial glimpse or not. We will, of course, have the ADP report on that Wednesday, but there's a lot of error between ADP and the payroll. So, again, they're going to be working with fragmentary data. The good news, I, I thought, um, is uh, the uh, statement by Austin Goolsby, the current president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, of that, I mean, basically, he I think he's ready to pause. The good part that I like is that he's a voting member. Um, I don't, the, the market is not betting on a pause now. Now it's about 80 to 90% another, maybe one and done, although that's not certain. But uh, that's sort of the expectation now, one and done, depending on the news. I think he would like to pause now. Um, I would love to see a dissent because there's been no dissent on FOMC meetings for over a year. Um, I would like to see some independent thinking there. As you know, I didn't think they should have increased last time or this time. I think the effect of the on the lending um, is 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 going to be at least two, three, four rate cuts. And in fact, Goolsby voiced that on CNBC today, and he'll be looking at the data. He said he would not commit to a pause vote, but he said I'll be looking at the data like a hawk uh, between now and the May third meeting. Um, uh, before he does a vote. But that's that would be the, the livest vote, I think, for a cut uh, at this particular time. So uh, we're, we're sort of held in abeyance. The real effects of the lending slowdown are not coming through on the data as expected yet and won't for a matter of weeks and only begin to begin effect by that May 3rd meeting. And um, so there, it's still up in the air. If we do get a lot of on the ground and manufacturing and ISM data that's really weak, the pause people will uh, tend to um, to gain their strength. On the markets, um, stocks, of course, are regaining up to that high, but falling so far on Friday because today, you know, we're getting stronger news that has put a damper on the cuts. Uh, the, the market says one and done. I can take another 25 um, and then I see cuts later on in the year. They're trying to look towards 2024, even with a mild recession scenario. You also have a calendar period of April, one of the best months of the year. First half of April generally being one of the best time periods of the year. Of course, it's winding down the first half. Um, and then, of course, you have that whole thing, you know, sell in May and go away, which is only two weeks away. So is this a cyclical top, a triple top? On the S&P, is there a room for a breakthrough if if, uh, if the rest of the FOMC uh, decides on one and done? Perhaps. Um, but again, I'm my feeling is is that we're going to have a, a, a slowdown this year. Banks were good, but again, first quarter, and they were the big banks that aren't affected. I mean, um, that's you know that that tells us nothing. In fact, the earnings reports. Uh, tell us nothing. The guidance, uh, to the extent that there is guidance and people are, uh, some of the people are seeing things on the ground um, right now, uh, early in April, that might be valuable. If someone says, you know, that, the, the, that they're seeing a big slowdown in April or something so far. But again, the March uh, quarter is not going to give you really much of a clue to the post SVB uh, economy. Professor, I, you know, also today headlines are from Chris Waller saying he doesn't see much inflation progress. His job is still not done. Um, you know, interestingly, you know, we've been doing those alternative inflation metrics. I think I sent you uh, an email last night saying if you plug in the average for the last six months as the next month figure for inflation, our alternative measure of inflation with current housing data drops to 20 percent for the, the trade of 12 exact months number i did see that jeremy um and it's been generally what we're saying uh i don't you know i i it just it totally is clueless to say i haven't seen any um progress uh on that front i mean again before the end of the month in the fed meeting we're going to see another case shower um 
and to see whether we get another decline in housing. Uh, there is some sign that the housing declines are slowing down. Um, the rental indexes, uh, which aren't seasonally corrected, always go up in the spring, and they are going up, although at a rate less than last year, and then go down in the fall, so it's hard to see. But basically, the rental rates are down uh, because a big drop in the second half of 2022. Uh, so again, we're using, you're absolutely right, using our housing data, which is just nothing more than the current housing data plugged into the CPI, we now get core of 2% year over year, uh, which includes 11 old months and, and one month old month. However, you know, I mean, there's those at the Fed that are still looking at that headline number. Um, and, um, I, I, you know, at, at this particular ju- uh, juncture, you would have to say they're doing one. The, the wording is going to be important. Um, one and done. And I think it depends on what they see on the ground over the next three weeks. Well, Governor Waller is, is speaking at a conference. I'm going to try to see him next week. We'll see if I can help share your message to him, see if yeah, you have any I impact. Mean, I, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for him, but, you know, someone like Austin Goolsby, who, you know, from Chicago, and I, I know better, um, you know, sees it much closer to uh, my way that uh, this uh, lending situation is equivalent to two or three rate hikes and and should not be ignored. We do have a trend up. Of course, uh, initial jobless claims, uh, when when we got a new benchmark, were revised upward a lot and trending upward. Still no, you know, big fall off. Um, But again, if they wait until official data is 2% over 2%, I think they've waited too long, drive us into a recession. I still expect substantial cuts by the end of the year um, as as the, as the economy uh, slows down. Well, we appreciate your comments to start the show, and we'll check in with you again next week. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor. I'm going to turn the conversation. We have a, a great guest, Nat Bullard, who is an independent uh, analyst, focuses a lot on the energy transition, climate change. I've also got Christopher Gennady, who's Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree, focuses a lot on thematics, what we call megatrends, and certainly investing for the energy transition is one of these megatrends. Uh, so Chris is really a deep expert on a lot of these topics and, and can help me guide some of the questions. But but Nat, you, you put together this annual... I don't know what you want to call it, an annual manifesto, 140-slide deck uh, across the space of of what's happening. Maybe give us a little bit about what motivated you to put this together, how you think about your role in evaluating all these things. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what motivated you to do this this big uh, annual trends in decarbonization. Manifesto, Jeremy. Thank you for that. I'm going to have to file that one away. I'm not aware of manifesti that get uh, revised every year, but maybe uh, we'd be better off if more of them did that. So thank you for having me on. Let me start by way of background. So I'm I'm, uh, an energy analyst by trade and within that really an analyst of what you could call renewable energy, the energy transition. And I think now these days, thinking about deep decarbonization, getting us to the point where Perhaps by the middle of the century, we're at net zero greenhouse gas emissions across the global economy. Um, I began this more than 15 years ago, actually coming up in 17 years now, by joining what was then a tiny little UK-based startup, uh, just doing information provision and early analysis on renewable energy that was called New Energy Finance. Managed to ride that through an acquisition by Bloomberg, uh, taking it a bit on the road, moving from the East Coast to the U.S., to San Francisco, to Hong Kong, back to the East Coast, elevating through the organization as, as, we, as uh, what became Bloomberg NEF continued to grow, covering all these different sectors, uh, every major economy, every major source of emissions, everything that's a lever really in changing the way that we engage with energy right now. And then um, about nine months ago, uh, I sort of stepped aside a little bit. I kept part of my portfolio, which is the public writing that I do for Bloomberg through Bloomberg Green. I still do a couple of projects with the Bloomberg NEF team. And then I do independent work. I do things like this big deck that you've seen. Um, I advise clients here and there. I do a lot of speaking, as you can imagine. 
uh, a lot of recording podcasts when I get the right hosts who are interested to, to talk to me. And then one of the big projects that I did, one of the things that had been sort of eating at me for all that time um, working as part of a big team was I wanted to sort of do exactly what you suggest, sort of set a manifesto. If I had to take three to four months of time with 15 years of accumulated experience behind it, what was the sort of story that I wanted to tell? How long was that going to be? What was it going to cover? What information needed to feed into it? And most importantly, what story was being untold? And there's, there's an analog here that I think both of you will know very well, and that's Mary Meeker's old Internet Trends presentation that she began doing in the 1990s. Uh, and I am so grateful to Meeker for having literally every single one of those things still in public on Bond Capital's site. You can go back and you can review them and you can read them. And while doing a bit of study and looking back on that, I thought, you know, the, the inspiration that she had, if I, if I interpolate it, is sort of what I was operating with, which is that the Internet – is not a thing. The internet is TMT companies, it's networking companies, it's media, uh, it, it's consumer packaged goods layered into that, it's distribution, it's all of these things together, but we treat it as, as a thing. I, mean, I return to this later on in my deck, it's sort of a hyper object in and of itself. And I think energy is the same sort of a challenge, is that any one of these things is a trillion dollar sector on its own. Oil, gas, other hydrocarbons, power generation, transportation, industry, anything to do with food and agriculture. All of these things in and of themselves are a trillion-dollar domain, and they're all analyzed independently, and they're analyzed vertically by very smart, very thoughtful people. But they are an integrated system, integrated around one idea, which is emissions. Right? And so thinking about it from that, so the Putting together the story, I would need in my head to work backwards, imagining we got to net zero emissions, required telling the story in a different way. Another person who does this fantastically well in technology is Benedict Evans. I'm sure that all of your listeners are familiar with his work on technology, um, working on these same kind of principles of like, what's the, what, what are the sort of motivating factors right now? What's the master narrative you need to have to think about the moment? And the final motivation is kind of near term, and that's that we've had really three exceptionally noisy years in the world of energy with multiple lenses coming into that noise. Inflation, supply chain challenges, a pandemic, a very large war. All of these things together tend to um, inflect the way that people think about their own particular domain within this great big challenge. And it can make it very challenging, I think, to see clearly what's actually happening. So that's the motivation. You know, it's something to be revisited Pretty much constantly, like I've already built about 50 new slides since the 140 that I had published at the beginning of the year. Uh, I'm going to try not to get this thing balloon past 200 slides in the long run, but I think it's important to sort of keep this master narrative running uh, and most importantly to keep revisiting where I can. Chris and I are, are always accused of having too many slides. So whenever we can find somebody, a man of our hearts, even more slides than Chris and I would come together with, uh, we appreciate talking to you. Um, I want to start one on hot button issue, and then I'll let Chris jump in with questions. Um, you know, t you've got a, this topic is very polarizing politically, it, like everything today. You know, you've got people who mm -hmm. will hear decarbonization and say, oh, you know, they got the left and, and versus the right in many of these questions. Larry Fink was on CNBC today saying people were picking apart his comments and you had the left picking up comments and the right picking up comments from his annual letter. And he's making a lot of investments into some of these. Your deck did talk a little bit about some of the anti-ESG trends. Chris just came back from five years in Europe. In Europe, if you don't have ESG as part of it, you can't even get into the room with investors in the U.S. Some of the different mentality, this overall trends, and, and is ESG creating some of the lack of investment in energy driving up oil prices? And Chris, give, give us a few of your comments on what you saw from Europe. Yeah, so you know it's uh, really issue by issue, and ultimately um, among uh, the key, the key areas here, I think I think that is back. But um, the the thing in Europe that they seem to be wanting to do is uh, a lot of solar, a lot of wind. Uh, they were shutting down some of the nuclear power plants. Uh, maybe they're revisiting that, and uh, Russia invading Ukraine and uh, sort of the associated. Uh, supply chain issues for natural gas have really uh, come to the fore. So that's uh, that's the the broad strokes of what we're seeing energy-wise uh, in Europe. 
Now, what's your view on on, on that? And on I'm that back. Topic? Sorry, fellas. Uh, hotel hotel Wi-Fi getting in my way here as I'm on the road. Um, but look, if I could if I could just jump back in on what Chris is saying, exactly right. Like that, you've got you have a lot of sort of top level push in Europe right now to do a lot of things, wind and solar, as well as a lot of industrial activity, a sort of response, hopefully in a productive way to our Inflation Reduction Act here in the U.S. And then you've got obviously the sort of emergent response to how do we deal with the fact that we have uh, a, a cutoff, an almost complete cutoff now in Russian natural gas supply to the continent. And then another challenge, Chris, as you mentioned, that, that Germany this, in this moment is shutting down its last three nuclear power plants, things that, that really do keep the lights on in the biggest industrial economy in Europe and avoid needing to import a fossil fuel or substitute with a much greater, a much greater capacity of renewable energy. Yet that's a longstanding policy choice of the Greens in Germany, and it has gone through. You've got a very complex picture, I think, that doesn't really doesn't get fully evolved, I don't think. And in, in looking at it, Nat, you, you sort of, and one of the things I liked about a lot of your slides, you have this sort of long history where you look back and you see what's really been happening with the levels of carbon dioxide, and you see what's really been happening with uh, the relative importance to a given economy of, say, oil or developed uh, versus developing economies and sort of the oil intensity. And, and you have a lot of these sort of long time series that in some ways indicate natural changes in that economies sort of are progressing in a direction. And you clearly see that from a lot of the numbers. And then other aspects, you're sort of sitting there thinking, Will we ever, as a society or as global societies, actually want to use less energy? Or is it more a question of we're always going to need to expand our production of energy and it's just a matter of getting these things online with the investments that you cite, trillions of dollars, that are going to be able to just keep increasing because as a society, we're really not, it's not going to be palatable to tell people, by the way, uh, turn your lights off at this time, don't use the car, et cetera. No, so listen, uh, totally, totally true. One of, the, one of the big challenges, and I think you probably know this as well, is the balancing the relative and the absolute, right? Yeah, you know, in relative terms, we see, we see a lot of, we see a lot of um, you know, derivative measures of real change that are happening where the absolute numbers might still be going on, right? I mean, like, absolutely, we're still increasing emissions. Absolutely, we're still increasing uh, our consumption of fossil fuels. Um, we, are, we are, however changing ratios. So uh, I helped chair, chair an event this week for Ember Climate, which is a very good um, nonprofit in Europe that captures all of the data on what's happening in the global electricity system. And Ember's call, which is very easily backed up in, in the numbers, is that um, first, we had solar and wind providing 80% of all incremental electricity consumption in the world last year. So very close to being like meeting all of the demand of electricity. If there hadn't been issues with nuclear power in Europe, in particular last summer, we would have had no growth in fossil fuel power generation at all. Uh, and, and groups like Ember, but even other, for, other uh, commercial forecasters, such as Rystad Energy, and then international organizations or quasi-international organizations like the, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, are all saying we are probably going to be very near peak emissions in from fossil fuel com combustion soon. Like, like it could be in the next three to five years. It's probably before 2030. And that's pretty extraordinary, right? Like that's something that people have been sort of thinking about for quite a long time. It's happening without, Chris, as you say, a sort of ratcheting down of global consumption, but more changing the mix of consumption. And one of the things that I, I make sure to emphasize uh, in its work that, that Bloomberg and EF and many others have also done in looking at the deep future is if you want to really decarbonize an economy and provide growing standards of living for people uh, uh, and continue to innovate and provide growing GDP, you're going to need much more energy. But you're also just going to need to change where you're getting it from. Instead of digging up things and burning them, you're going to be doing them with conversion of natural resource 
and probably um, ideally in the future with quite a bit of nuclear power as well. And then you need to think about all the modal shifts that go with that, more electricity going into transportation, but also going into industrial things these days, such as making of heat uh, or even other processes like making of uh, cement uh, that, that are hugely energy intensive, need to be reimagined, need to be rethought. But yes, like I, the, the way that I tend to view this, my lens on it is that we're going to have to do much, much more of everything. It's funny, the last night in my deck, which was put up before the Oscars, was everything, everywhere, all at once, because I wanted to sort of emphasize that that's the sort of scope and scale of change that needs to happen uh, for us to affect a change. But I do think it's important because there, there, there are dueling sort of philosophies on this that like, you know, if, if getting our emissions to zero is the sort of the prime mover, then everything necessary to do that, including, I, I wouldn't quite call it privation, but distinct limitation of consumption of everything is essential versus another sort of innovation lens, which is we need to ensure that we still have a growing economy. We need to lean on technology uh, let technology do what it does. We need to enable it. We need to put some forcing functions behind it of more capital and more policy in particular. But let's let innovation be the way that we solve uh, getting ourselves to net zero in the next three decades. I personally love that slide, um, you know, putting, even putting the movie aside, because essentially you sit there, you feel like the world has really emphasized electric vehicles, almost to the point where if right. you're just a regular person, you say, you know, I, I'm doing my part. I went out, I bought right. whatever it is, electric vehicle, and you don't even know, like, where the power, the power could be coming from a coal-fired plant down down the road or mm-hmm. in the zone. But you're, you're so right in that, you know, steel generation, construction, cement, if, if you don't focus on everything, we're not actually going to see net zero by 2050. No, that's exactly it's exactly right. Like the way that I view the the way that I view sort of two slices of the big sort of pie chart of emissions, which is power generation and transportation, is that they are not solved, but they are definitely solvable with an extrapolation of what we have today in many cases. Power generation, we can get ourselves to net zero emissions. We're going to have to do a lot and we're going to have to probably include nuclear power in there. So that's probably that's probably a a, a go though. And then Doing that, using that new energy source of electricity to substitute for liquid hydrocarbons in transportation means that we've got to, A, expand what we're doing in EVs. You know, uh, we're about 13, 14% of global EV, of EVs is global vehicle sales uh, at the moment, um, but also importantly, the only growth in vehicle sales uh, in the entire passenger car sector for the last five or six years. But then we also have to extend that to trucks. We've got to then think about decarbonizing stuff that is very difficult to do, like the uh, very efficient aero turbines that took me here from Washington, D.C. to Las Vegas yesterday, or the marine diesels that have the same power gener- power output as a small city consumes that take your things from Port of Shanghai to Rotterdam, uh, or any other number of very difficult challenges that we need to be taking on. And these are symbiotic, which is a good thing, but they're only just the start, right? Like, like we, there, are, there are processes for making steel that can substitute hydrogen and electricity for burning of metallurgical quality steel, uh, sorry, coal. Um, there are ways to substantially decarbonize aluminum production, but cement is going to be very, very hard. And then there's this entire other section of emissions that we don't tend to look at because it's, it's very hard to address and even sometimes to conceive of, but that's what happens in the world of food and agriculture, you know, that's what happens from uh, our burping cows and our, our methane pools and the supply chains that go along with food production and the use of land and the way that we change the use of land over time. So we've just we, we've got a lot to do. But I think that one of the other motivating factors, Jeremy, back to your, your original question for me, was that when I talk to people who are younger, let's be charitable to us, who are younger than we are. <laughs> at the front end of their careers rather than sort of more towards the middle. Many of them sort of view the, the sort of outline that I'm giving as a sort of an inevitability that they're, going to, that they're going to fill in over time, as opposed to when I was coming up, kind of pie-in-the-sky challenges. And one way, one way to sort of visualize that, um, and I would, I would urge your, your listeners to go out there and look and find these because there are many examples of these, is back-testing the official forecasts 
the canonical forecast of what was going to happen in, in solar power in particular, but also on electric vehicles. And the one that, I, that, that most stuck in my head was run five or six years ago. It was a comparison of forecasts from about 15 to 20 years ago. And the closest scenario that got to describing <clears throat> reality, the one that blew away everything that came from governments and came from the International Energy Agency and things like that, was actually a pie-in-the-sky Greenpeace scenario. One that was very much not viewed seriously and was not taken in any way as a kind of canonical output. But it did the best job of describing. And I'll I'll give you another interesting take on this that came from the the discussion I had this week with with Ember Climate, was that one of the uh, experts from RMI, a man named Kingsmill Bond, mentioned that, you know, there's all this fancy model you can do to look at, to think about the future of, of distributed technologies like wind or electric vehicles or solar or uh, heat pumps or, or hydrogen or something like that. It's like, actually, if you backtest all of them, the best descriptor of what happened was just the logistic curve. Like rather than trying to come up with some massive partial or general equilibrium model, you'd be better off to just like fit a logistic curve to technologies that were already growing fast. Nat, you know, one of the slides that called out to me, you know, we, we focus a lot on EVs and energy and power, but what we eat and it's lunchtime. So maybe I'm just staring at my lunch and I'm, I'm thinking about our food choices. But, you know, your, your comment was food and fuel choices matter. And and it was sort of fascinating stat that 40 percent of corn goes to me, 10 percent of gas. demand. talk about what how you, you know how you see this playing out over time in terms of what should we be doing differently? What could we be doing? Where do you see the food choices trend going and how is technology going to solve some of these issues? Well, that's quite a, that's quite a chart, isn't it? Right. So uh, the chart um, for everybody after listening that Jeremy's describing is showing what percentage of the U.S. corn production every year goes to making road fuel. So it does not enter the food chain at all. It purely goes in as a substitute for gasoline. And at the moment, we use 38% of the U.S. corn crop to produce about 10% of the equivalent of our gasoline consumption in the United States. That's, I still think, pretty extraordinary. Uh, It is largely, in fact, it's almost entirely a policy choice. That's an agriculture policy masquerading as an energy policy and an energy security policy within that. Uh, You may notice that there are lots of places that grow corn and they all have two senators. Um, So it does tend to be a sort of a sticky thing from a policy perspective. Uh, From an energy perspective, I think it's solving a problem that we could better solve in many other ways. So those policies around ethanol as a fuel date from an era in which you did not have a competing option for reducing consumption of gasoline. They also come from a time when the U.S. was still a substantial importer of fuels. And when prior to the sort of revolutions and hydraulic fracturing that led us to become the biggest oil producer in the world again, we were operating the assumption that like, our oil supply was sort of monotonically decreasing. And those things are no longer true. We are the biggest oil producer in the world, the United States. Um, We can now make an electric vehicle that does not use any liquid hydrocarbons at all, point source, to fuel a vehicle. But we have made a policy decision that is also a political decision that we're going to use almost 40 percent of our corn crop to offset about 10 percent of our gasoline demand. Now, the world needs calories in the future. Um, The world also needs to decarbonize transportation. And balancing these things is a delicate act that I don't think in this case is really a matter of technical choice at all. It's almost purely a matter of policy choice. And is is the change going to be, well, do you think there's tech that could change some of this? Or is it really just, as you said, the two senators aren't going to change it. Um, where, Where does this resolve over time? So tech, so tech is changing it. Like, like the, you know, uh, right now, globally, uh, electric vehicles, and that's everything. That's cars, buses, 
uh, two and three wheel little little vehicles, motorcycles, rickshaws, tuk-tuks uh, in in Asia predominantly, are reducing the amount of oil demand that we would have if they didn't exist by about two million barrels per day. So uh, that's that technology is already going on sort of independent of anybody's fuel substitution policies that are happening here in the United States. And then, you know, uh, uh, within the vehicle fleet, uh, the substitution happens in a sort of like an, like, like an aggregate in a sort of a linear way, but individually on a very choice-driven basis that you make the shift from I drive an internal combustion engine vehicle to I drive an EV, right? And you aggregate all those individual choices and you end up with, some sort of smooth curve of showing increasing EV adoption. But they don't, like, this is another big challenge, I think. One of the reasons I wanted to put this together is these things don't talk to each other at all. Like, here in the United States, you can have a politically driven corn ethanol policy that has zero, I mean, nothing to do with a purely uh, demand-driven substitution of gasoline consumption in Southeast Asia when people shift from a tiny motorcycle to an electric motorcycle or from uh, an electric uh, a gasoline three-wheeler three to a, a gasoline or an EV rickshaw. And we have to sort of be aware of these things, I think, very consciously and watch the numbers very carefully because they don't sort of sit within the same analytical frame. So, Jeremy, I take your question very well. It's actually very hard to answer, like, what we're going to do, but I tend to lean on the side of the highly distributed technologies that have a cost curve improvement underneath them. They get they, they decrease in cost, they increase in efficiency, and they also offer an alternative that may be preferable. And they may be cheaper to operate. They may be more stylish and more fun. They, uh, they may have another impact or another subsidiary policy supporting them that, that people take to heart very clearly. But yeah, I, I, I can see a future in which we still have a corn ethanol-based uh, liquid fuels policy here in the United States that becomes less and less relevant uh, as a part of the energy mix unless it continues to really, really displace gasoline, which then becomes a whole other challenge. Like if it's really displacing, I don't know, 30% of gasoline demand as EVs have eroded gasoline demand, then it turns out to be very significant. But back to the point about food, like that corn, that, that corn has value as an, as an energy input because it is a calorie, because, you know, it is itself energy. What are we going to do with it? You can make high fructose, fructose corn syrup out of it. You can, you can make all kinds of food products out of it. You can make it into animal feed, or you can make it into ethanol, and you can use it as a substitute for gasoline. Just connecting yeah, a few of the things. Oh. Go ahead, Grace. Thinking about the, the picture here, one of, one of the things – because when you start talking about food and you start getting into sort of developed markets versus emerging markets, uh, it's I'm sure all of our listeners are probably thinking um, you've got sort of Russia versus the, the West uh, as a result of the Ukraine crisis. And you're sort of saying, OK, given what happened there within the last year, it's possible that we might be saying the progress on certain fronts of decarbonization was put into supercharged mode because you wanted to you know, sanction Russia and yep. use less of their outputs. And then similarly, it feels like, and Jeremy has done other episodes on this exact topic, it feels like you're setting up for some sort of something. I don't know what to call it, U.S. versus China. But at the same time, you sort of hear the U.S. is decarbonizing in certain ways and China is decarbonizing in certain ways. And it's it's not as obvious to say to sanction China you're, you have this clear thing of, say, cutting natural gas demand or something like that. So the, the geopolitics in which we live influences a lot of what uh, we're, we're seeing on the ground. Totally. And we, we have to remember the differences in different types of energy economies that are there. Like, you know, the, U the U.S. is like the second biggest in pretty much everything. We're second largest power generation system. Uh, I think we still are the largest consumer, we should still be the largest consumer of oil, I think, ahead of China. China's the largest importer of oil. Uh, but we're, we're, we're not growing at the same pace that China itself does, or certainly not at the aggregate as, say, India plus Southeast Asia are growing. 
And so we have to remember that we have sort of different priorities. Put the U.S. and Europe kind of in a bucket at which we're, we're dancing. We've we passed the peak in, in emissions and in consumption of a lot of the sort of hydrocarbon driven elements of our of our energy economies. And we're now sort of negotiating live and in public what our future what our future consumption steady state is going to look like. And look, that steady state may still be actually continuing decline in consumption of, of hydrocarbons. But in other places, that's not clear yet at all. Like you're talking about a baseline of energy consumption that is still growing. And so you're talking about not just substituting, but continuing to meet new incremental, you know, new major demand, not just marginal demand. But this is where I think it's really important to look at in aggregate again, where where the global economy is going, but also to drill in on what individual economies want, what their goals are. You know, every every economy, particularly those that, that import fuel, are acutely aware of the risks that come with doing that. It's why when you do sign supply contracts in many of these places, you sign them for decades. You know, liquefied natural gas contracts, for instance, are oftentimes signed decades long. At the same time, some of them are also done spot and cargoes change hands en route. They change hands while they're in transit uh, as, as a sort of another way of hedging your security over time. And so we need to watch very closely to see where, you know, where countries view themselves as competing and collaborating. And it's definitely subtle and it's definitely a challenge. So China, for instance, dominates a large swath of certainly the processing capacity for a lot of the key inputs for deep decarbonization, for solar, for, for critical minerals that go into solar and go into electric vehicles. Um, they're definitely vastly ahead of the rest of the world in volume terms and in many ways in, in, in sort of sophistication terms of the speed with which they can manufacture mass product, mass produced um, high you know, technical products like solar panels and wind turbines and certainly electric vehicles. And how do, how do countries need to negotiate that? So the United States is a big enough market and I think Europe and aggregate as well that there can be a sort of wholesale and industrial policy that says we're going to essentially bring these things back to us. And you can, you can certainly see that in the announcements that have happened in the IRA, uh, and you can definitely see it in the data. I believe uh, last year we had a, about $108 billion spent uh, or invested in manufacturing capacity in the U.S. last year, which is, how should we say, not where that number used to be. Like, you know, the U.S. is, is on its way back to building a great deal of industrial capability. In Europe, it's it's trickier because there is the European Union, which sets all these targets, and then there are countries which do their own thing. Uh, and then China has every interest in, in, in maintaining where it sits, but also in continuing to advance and moving into sectors that it views as key and critical. But then there are there are there are producers that, that want to diversify their base of operations and are sort of moving operations to India or moving some operations to Southeast Asia. And then there's the whole rest of the world that may be less concerned about the geopolitics of this and more interested in simply quality, quality product at competitive price, uh, which could be Chinese made EVs, uh, you know, being exported all over the world. It can be, uh, it could be Southeast Asian manufactured wind and solar products that are going to an end destination in Africa or in South America. It's, it's a, it's a complex picture for a reason. And I, and I think we have to remember the motivations behind any, block of actors within that in terms of what they're seeking to do, where they're seeking to create competitiveness, where they're seeking to reduce exposure, and where they're seeking to maximize gain. And, Chris, and Matt, is- when, you, when you look at that $108 billion, which uh, is something we've, we've talked about before on the program, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, and you, you, you've clearly seen the announcements around, say, battery recycling, but at the same time, a lot of those vehicles are new, so they're not necessarily hitting the scrapyards yet. You're also seeing the announcements where, you know, GM will be working with LG and Panasonic will be making uh, certain cell plants that go to the, the gigafactories and supply Tesla. Um, but one of the questions I'd, I'd be curious to get your opinion on is, are we seeing the investment in the processing capability occurring yet in the U.S.? Because to me, that's really what China controls. And it feels like the U.S. 
is painting around the corners, but maybe not exactly doing uh, the, the raw processing that uh, China's doing, at least not yet. This is very true and very important and one for us to very much keep our eyes on is that like actually kind of paradoxically, it's this, these steps, the processing step that may not be as technically sophisticated in many cases, but it's very closely held in China because China has been doing it for quite some time and has the speed and scale to do it at the speed and scale required. And making those decisions, uh, this wraps into another one of these sort of like mega themes within the U.S. energy system in particular, is about what are our priorities and what are we going to, what are we going to permit? <laughs> what are we going to literally and metaphorically permit to be done? You know, are we, are we going to take on these steps? Because, look, they're not, they're not uh, pristine, clean room things. Okay, it's not, it's not like the end stages of a cutting-edge semiconductor fabrication plan. You know, this is <laughs> this is moving liquids around. This is you know converting things, but with other energetic inputs, they have waste streams that come out of them. Are we are we going to? And I think we should approach these things honestly in terms of what it is that we hope to get out of them, with the best environmental controls that are absolutely possible, with a bias towards being. Uh, uh, rapid and supple in how we think about them from a policy and planning perspective. But we do need to make sure that we have the ability to move on this. If it's a priority, then I think building fuller stacks, including processing capacity, is really important. And then there's an analog to that, too, in thinking about just planning and permission in general, not, you know, not, 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 not having things take 15 years to be permitted if it's a, a transmission line that's going to be connecting a new corridor of wind, wind and solar assets in the Intermountain West to load centers on the coasts. You know, we, we will need to move quickly. The U.S. at the moment has 10,600 power generation assets that have requested connection to the U.S. power grid. If you were to build all of them on a capacity basis, they'd be about 50% more total power generation capacity than exists in the U.S. today. And that took us like 120 years to build all of that. Now, it's getting harder, not easier, to build these things over time. And the IRA has definitely supercharged the demand side, uh, and it's given every incentive to build assets. But it would be the equivalent of building cars and not building a highway. You know, like if, if you were building cars and not building the road, much less the highway, any sort of surface conveyance on which these things can actually travel. And so, again, a, a sort of non-technical policy driven decision point to be to be approached, ideally quickly and ideally in good faith and highly publicly. We're starting to see quite a lot of that, um, in, I, I think, in a good way. This sort of uh, sense that it's 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 time to speed up what we do. It's definitely part of Senator Manchin's uh, platform in terms of what he's looking for and hoping for out of uh, out of the next steps to come beyond the IRA. But it will be essential. Like we you, we will not be able to just innovate our way out of any of this thing. Right? Um, we will have to implement our way out of it as well. What, what's interesting, there's definitely a lot of policy uh, thoughts that come from this and what we can do to speed up all these things. Um, I, I would try to get a final few minutes, we have about four or five minutes left, try to bring to some of the investment implications. I mean, one of the things you talk about is this net zero trend means a lot more materials. And you see at the top of your list, lithium and nickel and the amount that you need as you go towards net zero versus how much is done today, rare earths, which is a China-specific question as well. Um, is that one of the top, uh, well, that's sort of one of the commodity implications, but as you think about maybe maybe a few comments on that and any other, as you think about the investment implications of all these policies, where anything else that you're, you're excited about? Sure. So I think the, the, the first one that I, that I, the thing that's most compelling to me in thinking about all of that demand is, remember, these are pictures in time. That's ceteris paribus. We're going to take today's energy economy and think about where the technologies are going to go if we're going to take today and build it, build it at much bigger scale into the future. The most interesting thing for me to think about, and it's challenging, is what might obviate that? What might keep that from happening? And I want to walk through batteries as an example here. So 
Um, we, we use a specific chemistry for most of the lithium-ion batteries that are used in cars today, uh, NMC, nickel, uh, it, it, nickel, nickel and whatnot, right? It's, it's, a, it's highly efficient. It's very well proven. Um, it's the theoretically best thing that you can use. But we're seeing, in particular in China, a substitution for a theoretically less efficient but very cost-effective uh, and very useful new chemistry that substitutes a lot, of the, a lot of the nickel and the cobalt for iron and phosphate. These are much more abundant. They're less expensive. And that battery, those batteries, as they get better and better, are eating into the demand for the sort of the highest efficiency products. So in China, less than 62% of the car batteries by storage volume work from this new chemistry. And we're going to see the same thing again potentially happen with another battery that uses sodium in place of lithium. Sodium is, again, fairly abundant as an element. There are performance characteristics of these batteries that we need to be aware of. But there's a, there's a the continuing sort of market and tech-driven confluence of finding substitutes. The, the cure for high prices is high prices. Uh, and the cure for scarcity is substitution. So, you know, if something is fundamentally scarce... There's nothing you can do about it. If it's scarce because we don't do processing capacity, you can process and do that. Or maybe at the same time you'll have in parallel that there are technologies that are working to just do away with it so, you know, altogether. And you will watch those technologies continue to erode uh, these particular stated dominance of, of this and that and the other. So to, to me, I mean, my, I guess my, my final thought here is that it's highly dynamic, despite the fact that it's taking place over the course of two or three decades. And I think what I would urge people to think most clearly about is, like, is this what, what could most inflect this vision of the future? Look at the edges now and think about how this could become the center in the coming five, ten years within a business cycle or two. And what are the implications for what you're doing today if that happens? Well, Nat, this has been a great conversation. We appreciate you taking your 140-slide deck, bringing it to us in about a little bit less than an hour. Chris, always great to have you on with me here on Behind the Markets. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Thanks to our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.